Hello and welcome to Energy Voice Outland, where we are leading the global energy conversation. I'm Ed Reed, Emerging Markets Editor here at Energy Voice. I'm delighted to be welcome Ryan Duff and Andrew Dykes. Chaps, how are you? Have you been swept away by Storm Babette? We are broadcasting live from the eye of the storm. I am uh, currently safe, sheltering in place, uh, but it does look bad out there. Ryan, I think it's maybe even a little bit worse for you. Yeah, yeah, up the up the northeast, it's definitely hitting hard. Uh, I think there's a red weather warning uh, just outside of Aberdeen, so Aberdeenshire uh, area, which isn't great. I think that's the first time I've seen that as close. It's normally yellow is the size we get, but red is a threat to life. I think is what the Met Office says, which is terrifying. Uh, but we're 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 fine. If a uh, if my windows in my living room cave in during the recording, then I might you might hear a loud scream, and then my audio will just cut, and that's uh, that's how the podcast is going to go. Well, well, the good news is we can we can fix that in post. So, uh, lis- listeners, it may happen, but the production will continue. Work some audio magic. I mean, that's, yeah, that's what's that? It's, it's exactly. <laughs> but it's been a turbulent week for you too, Ed. Right? Indeed, it has, Andy. Thanks. What, what a fantastic segue. Um, indeed. So I was um, I, w- I was uh, standing outside the Energy Intelligence Forum. For a number of hours on on, on Tuesday morning, I was, I, I you see the, the thing is, I I become slightly used to the fact that protests turn up at these events, you know, and I, I I generally feel that they're kind of early birds, right? They are very much, you know, rise with the larks, get down there, you know, glue yourself to a door, uh, and then by sort of half past nine or so, job done, you know, you can you can you can move on. So I thought, fine, I'll I'll I'll, I'll do this strategically. I thought. I'll turn up at half past nine, you know, uh, and 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 just be able to waltz straight in. I could not have been more wrong, as it turns out. So I I I, I got there a little bit late and um, discovered that uh, Fossil Free London and Extinction Rebellion had uh, blockaded the doors to the Intercontinental at the at the bottom of Park Lane, um, therefore uh, shutting off access to the uh, to the Energy Intelligence Forum, or as uh, the uh, the protesters liked to remind us, it was called uh, Oil and Money up until 2019. So um, I mean, I think that was that, that that still felt like a like a very much a, a, a live red flag, should we say? So. Um, it was it was it was quite a strange scene because uh, there was there was a sort of a cordon of of, of these uh, these these protesters. There were some police milling around, and then there were a number of suits. Uh, and I and I kind of sort of fell slightly more under that rubric, despite having uh, such long hair that people kept on trying to work out whether I was in fact an undercover protester. So um, we we ended up sort of standing outside until about lunchtime, uh, when um, a whole bunch of policemen turned up um, and, and and sort of provided something of an entryway into in, in, into the conference. Um, they did also arrest a number of people. I think it was about twenty. Uh, obviously, the most high profile being uh, Greta Thunberg, who 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 got led off. Um, it was quite interesting because mostly the the police, you know, sort of walked off with these people quite sort of you know gently. But with Greta, there was very much a, a sense of accelerated departure uh, to the point that they actually ran over a photographer, uh, and so there was a sort of a moment of sort of uh, high drama in in, in their escape. And obviously, that very felt much like a like a like a sort of a rallying cry for the uh, for the for the protests. So it was. It was. A, there was a lot going on outside. Um, there was a lot of lot of people saying uh, no new oil. Um, lots of lots of sort of chat around. Uh, there, was, there was a big uh, a big sort of skeleton looking fellow. 
Uh, there were a lot of pink umbrellas. There were some ab sailors. It was very much a sort of a carnival air. What a day for you. Two days. And and you went back. You went back the next day. Yeah, well, this was the thing. I, I, I just couldn't get enough. Um, so day two was uh, themed by the protesters around Rosebank because uh, the, uh, the the head of Equinor... Uh, and as Opadel was, was was speaking at the event uh, in the in the afternoon, um, but having learnt my lesson, I was there pretty much at dawn uh, when the only people who were there were, were policemen. So I've got no idea. Uh, uh, apparently, there, there, there was a sort of a, there was a sort of gauntlet uh, that uh, they they made uh, attendees uh, run, where they would shout "Shame on you!" Um, but I, I I I I missed that, and and as I was. You know, I, I sort of, you know, got out a, a sort of late in the afternoon. It was sort of getting dark by that point. There'd been sort of soft rain for a couple of hours, which I've got to say really kind of killed the uh, the, the the demonstrator's zeal for protesting about Rosebank. So I suppose um, in future, I think, you know, obviously conference organisers will probably be praying for rain. I think for our purposes, it sounds like we might need Energy Voice kind of branded flak jackets with press on it as well. I mean, it seems like there's more and more events that's becoming a necessity. I, I mean, some of the footage I saw on Twitter was really interesting. It, it did genuinely seem to be kind of one of those unusual protests that was a kind of leveler. You know, I saw like the heads of I think Trafigura kind of conversing with protesters and things like that and seeming to have, you know, I mean, I'm assuming he wasn't particularly pleased about being stuck outside, but, you know, a kind of rational kind of back and forth conversation that seemed relatively pleasant given the circumstances yeah yeah i mean i think i, th- I mean i've got to say like for the most part like the, the the mood was fairly benign right i mean i think there was there was, it wasn't like a sort of like an argy bargy kind of an atmosphere so you know obviously uh me and the suits uh were sort of standing on one side of the road um and you know every now and then you know so a, a protester would come over and have a chat and say look you know we think you should stop you know producing all that you know, which I was like, all right, I'll 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 bear that in mind. Um, but as 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 you say, Andy, I think I think it was the head of Gunvor who who had the chat, uh, Torborn Tornqvist. Um and uh, yes, it 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 was a very strange moment where he was saying, you know, we don't actually produce oil; we just, you know, sort of trade physical commodities. And there was a, a sort of a slightly strange sort of uh, standoff about, uh, you know. Tornqvist kind of trying to explain, you know, kind of the, uh, the 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 kind of the trading game, but yeah, it was it was it was strange, and I, and I suppose that was the thing, wasn't it? So um, he, at that point, he was supposed to be inside on a panel, sort of you know talking about you know traders and their role in the energy transition. Um, obviously, he couldn't get inside. So what instead he just decided to give his panel discussion to the protesters yes un- unfortunately they, they, you know the, the the question that i always look forward to at that point is is the point when uh, they go around this panel of traders every year and they say what is your prediction for kind of crude oil for for, for next year which is always a, a a fascinating insight into the fact that obviously uh no one knows um so the year after year there are sort of you know bold predictions which is always like a quite 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 an entertaining bit Obviously, if I had been the uh, the scientist for uh, you know against climate change or something, I might have asked that question as well. But unfortunately, I wasn't holding a placard, so I didn't get a chance to uh, to, to ask him about his oil price predictions. But yeah, so in 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 the whole, it was it was it was pretty genial. What about the mood inside the conference? I mean, did you feel that there was an impact? I'm assuming people couldn't kind of ignore it, but did you feel like it it was derailed or people were just kind of like carrying on regardless? I mean, what, what was the the kind of mood in there? I mean. I think it's 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 tricky, isn't it? Because obviously inside there was just a lot of discussion around the energy transition, right? And 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 obviously it's kind of the other other sort of piece of the puzzle. And 
there was, you know, there were, you know, some quite interesting discussions about how companies should be working in, you know, this atmosphere. There was, you know, like, um, obviously, so, and as opened up talking about Rosebank, obviously, you know, the kind of the first question out of the gate was, you know, how do you, how do you respond to this, uh, you know, this, this, this kind of opposition, right? How do you, and, you know, it's, as he said, it's a, it's a difficult decision because, um, you know, clearly, you know, most people in the industry see there being some sort of role for, you know, hydrocarbons into the future. Uh, how you get that balance, obviously, Equinor does offshore wind as well as, you know, uh, oil and gas. And he was, you know, sort of talking about, you know, obviously the that the, the, the company, you know, sort of working to to, to reduce the kind of carbon emissions per per barrel of oil and that sort of thing. So it 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 was it was um very much a kind of a question of energy transition but obviously you know the sort of the uh, that that nuance doesn't really get carried through to the, uh, the 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 demonstrators outside which you know obviously is 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 something of a criticism of them but at the same time i think you know the fact that um those protests there very much serves to hold the industry's feet to the fire right that you know that there is still this 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 pressure and and obviously um quite interesting whale sawan was uh the the head of shell was supposed to be speaking on the on the first day he couldn't make it in because of the uh because of the demonstrators so had to sort of you know sort of tune in by video link and and obviously for for sawan in particular it's quite a sort of a live issue because you know clearly kind of coming in um about a year or so ago and and, and sort of i suppose in a way you know, changing the direction of Shell. I mean, you know, obviously he's still sort of talking the energy transition game, but he has moved back more sort of pro hydrocarbons than his than his predecessor. And so, I mean, I think you know, it's 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 clear that you know, then you know, we need to hear those kind of voices of dissent both from outside the hall, and as uh, someone has kind of experienced, you know, and 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 has discussed, you know, those kind of you know challenging voices from, from from inside the company so it was a it was a quite a rough ride I suppose in some ways I you know obviously didn't really enjoy standing outside uh in the cold for four hours but at the same time you know I think it's uh that's kind of par for the course I mean it it does make me wonder about the sort of you know what precautions you know uh conference organizers will need to take in future obviously there's a sense where sort of fossil free London in particular I think has talked about trying to make the city sort of hostile to events. Um, and I think, you know, on the basis that high profile people like uh, the head of Gunvor had to sort of stand outside for, you know, however many hours rather than sort of getting inside and, and speaking on the panel, obviously that's going to, that's going to take its toll. And, you know, either there's going to be a need for more police presence uh, to kind of, you know, deter those sort of actions, or frankly, those conference organizers will will move to other cities, right? I mean, I think, you know, people were talking about Paris. I was in uh, Abu Dhabi a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, I there, there there is there is less of that sort of um, you know disruption in, in in other places. So I think this is going to be a question for sort of, you know, ongoing question around 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 events in London. But listen, I think that's probably enough uh, of, of, of my thoughts and feelings uh, for that for the time being. We're gonna have a, a have, have a short break and, and then we're gonna come back and hear a little bit about something that is probably very close to uh, Greta's heart. A little bit about uh, offshore wind. In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. 
From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. So, Ryan, big, uh, big, big week for offshore wind. When is it not, I suppose, for those north of the border? Tell me what's been happening with Sea Green. Yeah, so Sea Green, uh, it, it produced first power earlier this year, but it, it's uh, it's now fully operational. Uh, th- that was the words they used, and it did make me think a little bit of the Emperor from Star Wars speaking about his Death Star. But that's that is what he was. Uh, that's the the words they used. That's the words that went into the copy. Uh, all 114 of Vest, uh, the Vestas turbines at the site are working, um, producing around 1,075 megawatts. Uh, that makes it Scotland's largest offshore wind farm. It's it's sort of been a, a long time coming. There's been a lot of talk on it and long-term readers of uh, Energy Voice will have seen the sort of development sort of progress but yeah this uh, this is a three billion pound project and it has the capacity to generate enough renewable electricity to power almost 1.6 million UK homes per year. Uh, uh, Hamza Youssef, sort of the, the uh, Scotland's first minister, uh, sort of welcomed the news that it sort of yeah like completely finished and was sort of up to full power saying that it wasn't just um a sort of landmark occasion for um for the project but he said it was a significant milestone for scotland as well as we're looking to sort of roll out offshore wind quite quite a bit as as you sort of alluded to there Ed, there's a strong ambitions for offshore wind to sort of dominate Scottish waters, uh, both flowing and fixed. This is a, a fixed develop, a fixed bottom development. Stephen Wheeler, Managing Director of SSE Renewables, explained that Sea Green has contributed over £1 billion to the Scottish economy and supported thousands of jobs. Um, I believe, yeah, like I say, the spending was about th- uh, £3 billion on the project. So £1 billion going to Scottish companies, that's, that's not an inconsiderable amount. SSE Renewables will operate the offshore wind farm with support from its project par- partner, Total Energies. Um, but there's been a little bit of chatter in Total Energies and Sea Green recently. It, there's been reports that it might be looking to offload some of its stake in the project. It currently owns a 51% share. However, in the announcement, there was no sort of indication that that was aggressively being pursued. Um, definitely one to keep an eye on. But so far, um, Total Energy's CEO was saying that he was very pleased to see Sea Green generating full power. Uh, this is, uh, you know... This is, you know, like I say, it's the the largest floating, uh, largest fixed bottom offshore wind farm in Scotland. So it's it is a, a major milestone. So thinking about that uh, total uh, sort of potential sale, right? So it's just started up. It's got a fifty one percent stake. Do you, do you have any ideas about why this would be like a good time for, for for total? I suppose you know, obviously, I suppose now it's operational. Presumably, that means you would get a higher price for it. But I thought, I mean, I, I always had the impression that that, that total is kind of keen on on sort of you know being an energy company, you know, kind of pursuing uh, pursuing things like offshore wind. Yeah, I mean, I think this. Is- is Total's largest offshore wind project as well, not just you know Scotland, but like across the whole the whole company. Um, from from their messaging around this news, they seemed very pleased with it. They seemed very happy that the you know it it 
been finished and uh, it was fully operational. But um, yeah, I, I don't, I'm, it does seem a bit out of left field for that firm in particular to be saying that they'd be looking to offload their stake. I haven't seen much speculation around who would take it up if if they were to sell. The the news also said that it'd be some of their stake, so maybe just looking to reduce the their sort of ownership in it, but not totally move away from the project. Uh, it does seem like a strange time to do it, though, right? Surely most of the spend's done, most of the most of the hard work's done now that it's up and running. I mean, I, I suppose maybe maybe that's the thing. Maybe sort of Total sort of sees itself as being able to take on that kind of construction risk, uh, and now that things are operating, maybe it can sell it to I don't know, like a like a pension fund or some sort of investor who's maybe you know not used to uh, kind of large scale uh, construction projects um but it's uh, i suppose it's a, it it's something that seems like an interesting move there's an ongoing kind of chat i mean has for a long time about the role of especially i think integrated oil and gas companies with you know playing that construction role and i think there's still this kind of big question as to yeah whether they sell out at the end or whether you know any I think sold in at the beginning of Dogger Bank and, and kind of came in late to the party and obviously wanted that on on their balance sheet. So I think it's about that kind of heft in the beginning phase, right? But obviously Total seems to kind of they they're about capacity, right? I, I can't remember the targets off the top of my head, but they have these kind of long term renewable capacity targets that they want to hit. So I'm, I would assume if they wanted to sell out, it was it's probably to free up some capital to do a, a bit more. They've I think bid in the the German auction. A potentially secured capacity there. Maybe there's a bit of reallocation. Um, I'm not sure, but I suppose, uh, yeah, it's it's all about what role they see themselves as as the developer, as the manager, and maybe the manager is less kind of appealing from that point of view. Yeah, I mean, definitely. You know, you just touched on Dogger Bank there. I think it's also worth mentioning that this has just been a, a big time in uh, in offshore wind in Scotland or in the UK in general. You know, Dogger Bank just achieved its first power um, the other week there as well. So it's. Uh, and yeah, I think um, Rishi Sunak weighed in on that one, to say, you know, sort of showing his support for it. Um, I think the the country's got strong offshore wind ambitions, and seeing these projects sort of come to light and put power into the grid, which is continually being a sort of a tough position, a tough thing to actually secure, is is always a, a positive thing. It's always sort of tough to tough to sort of dive into these things when it's it's so positive it's like oh it's just a good thing you know it's it's now it's now up and running and yeah i think the the big speculation now is will total sell and who to i think is the uh the main thing i mean i, I suppose it it does seem like it's been a been a, been a good week for uh, a good week or so but also i suppose you know thinking about was it september when the uh, the, the latest sort of cfd round was obviously a, a failure just thinking about this sort of the the this you know sort of dogger bank sea green are these uh ppas are they cfds how have these worked when obviously that sort of last round of cfds failed yeah i mean i think um there's definitely been a lot of discussion around the cfd process uh this time around and i think uh, it just it, it 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 well the general consensus is just like it, the price wasn't right this time round that it's it's gonna sort of the government's gonna have to sort of look into that for next time as there should be a a wake up call moment. Um, as to as to why Dogger Bank and Sea Green are doing so well, uh, or at least sort of plugging along while other projects are failing, that's that is a very good question. I wish I had more of an answer for you, but um, I guess. Yeah, I think uh, looking looking forward to the to the industry. So there is obviously some changes that need to be made for the the UK to reach its 
quite hefty flowing offshore wind goals. I think we we hear that from industry quite uh, consistently that that's that is the case. And um, yeah, I think not just for the rollout of fixed bottom, but then we're also looking to sort of roll out floating and. Uh, for floating offshore wind, we're sort of looking for that to almost overtake fixed bottom in the next 20, 30 years, I believe. I think that's what uh, Renewable UK was saying at the top of their uh, their conference in Aberdeen just a few weeks ago. So, uh, yeah, I think all in all, this this news is quite a, a strong signal. It's quite a, quite a positive thing, but there are still unquestionably some really really tough challenges facing the flow, uh, the offshore wind sector. I think um, Sea Green is, having just Googled it, 40%, 40% CFD uh, capacity secured. I don't, I don't know what the remainder is. I haven't checked on whether the remainder is PPA, but I think the, the clue here is just that it's historic, right? I think it's been secured capacity a few years ago and in a previous round, like maybe AR4. Um, they've been able to kind of leverage against that and, and I think are starting to deliver power under the CFD from next year or 2025. Not sure of the proportion on on Dogger Bank, um, but I mean I think even that you know they faced you know, even they didn't necessarily have the the kind of interest rate inflationary capital rate things that we're seeing now and which has kind of derailed AR five. They kind of faced some serious challenges getting here, and I think you know it's fair to say it was later than initially expected. We had Saipem's very high profile, very scary looking crane collapse in Norway, which I think uh, waylaid them somewhat. I think there was. Uh, some uh, a lot of debate around that you know you mentioned the economic kind of impact there i think there was a lot of uh, ill feeling potentially around kind of where some of the contracts went i know some of the the foundations were kind of middle eastern fabricated and, and that tends to um upset unions in scotland we kind of currently don't have the capacity to uh to deliver the the foundations on the scale that we need them for these projects so there's, there's a tough kind of balance to strike there um, I think there's a lot of wind issues in microcosm in these projects, right? Uh, and it, it's obviously great to see them succeed. Um, but I think it's, yeah, it's not been without it, their own challenges. I think we'll take that as a break. And then, Andy, I think we're going to come back and, and hear more about uh, floating wind from you. So stay tuned. Have you been searching for the latest sustainability news, developments, insights and analysis? Why not have it delivered straight to your inbox? Sense of Sustainability is the weekly newsletter for individuals and organizations committed to a more sustainable future. Each issue is designed to equip your business with the tools it needs to thrive in an inclusive, sustainable economy. Join the conversation and head to sgvoice.net slash sign up to sign up for our newsletter. So Andy, I mean, you've you you you, you teed yourself up very nicely uh, in your in your discussion about some of the challenges, uh, and and you, you you wrote a piece uh, this week about uh, floating wind and, and some 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 challenges there. And I suppose look, we've seen sort of inflation, we've seen um, you know some of these uh, some of these problems. Obviously, kind of there's questions around sort of local capacity. What were you looking at this week? Well, I really enjoyed this this story this week, and and speaking to uh, to Adelshaw Goddard to help me out with it. Um, I think it's just a really interesting intersection of kind of factors involving, you know, the new technologies that we're looking at, a lot of the logistical challenges of developing kind of big wind projects, floating wind in particular, and and the law, which obviously governs it all. So we've talked a lot about floating wind recently, not least in the wake of the uh, big event in Aberdeen that, that Ryan and I attended earlier this month. Um, there was a lot of optimism there, but it felt like, you know, we're a few years off things really taking off in, in the sector. There's a lot of kind of chat around early stage collaboration but not a lot of chat around how these things are actually going to get in the water 
one thing that does come up a lot in, in discussion around floating wind is their foundations. So these are these uh, huge, usually kind of three-legged, semi-submersible structures that you then kind of uh, mount a wind turbine monopile on top. Um, they're then usually moored to the seabed to stabilize them. In doing so, there's a lot of questions around where they're made, who's going to make them, what design. I think at one point, you know, someone from Equinor's mentioned kind of 150 potential floating designs out there and, you know, narrowing down to, to the which, you know, maybe 10 to 20 are going to be used in various conditions around the world is still a, a big open question. Uh, for our purposes today, the Concarden floating wind farm off Aberdeen, like five turbines, uh, usually, uh, <clears throat> until recently, the, the largest scheme in the world, still potentially the most well-known, and anyone who's gotten the train into Aberdeen from south uh, might have seen it in the past few years. It's five wind floats, and uh, they may look like turbines to, to you or I, but they are in fact registered as ships which is a very interesting experiment in, in kind of classification. And I think it's, it's understood to be the first kind, uh, first of its kind anywhere in the world. So this was partially orchestrated by Adelshaw Goddard's uh, partner and maritime expert, Ed Watt, who I spoke with about a week ago. He was kind of brought into the project in, I think, 2018. And they basically said, you know, here's a challenge. We're building these, uh, these floating uh, offshore wind semi-submersible structures in Spain. They need to get from Spain to the UK and then and put onto the site east of Aberdeen. How how are we going to do that and, and stay clear of the law? So the question uh, kind of came up as to whether they would need various certificates to allow them to be towed from, I think, Spain and then into the ne Netherlands where the turbine was mated with the structure and then kind of brought to the UK and then installed. So uh, Ed is uh, an expert in navigating the registration process for any kind of uh, vessel. Uh, he said he's worked on submarines, flying boats, ROVs and anything in between. Um, so it seemed like a challenge that he relished and, and kind of really interesting legal yeah, experiment. And he suggested that they were registered as ships, basically because he'd seen um, semi-submersible oil and gas rigs kind of registered as ships in, in pretty much the exact same way. These are the similar things. They're structures, they float, they have equipment on top of them, and it operates as part of a business model, whatever. But ultimately, to get them across maritime borders, to look after them, to be able to ensure them, they are registered in ship classified, classified and registered in, in ship registries. Um, so the main reason that he said was just if you want to tow anything uh, into a country from somewhere else uh, across the sea, you'll need a certificate that basically says they are seaworthy. And that is what registration as a ship gives you. It, it kind of assures everyone involved that this thing will float and is approved as a structure, as a thing to be kind of used for these purposes. Um, What's interesting, I suppose, one of my first questions was, you know, we ship wind turbine components around the world all the time for these projects. Um, they often make international journeys and are integrated in various different parts of the world and moved around. Typically, they are loaded onto barges or installation vessels. And, and that kind of process, I think, from the legal perspective, means that they're cargo. They're not kind of their own thing. If you take a huge, big fixed foundation and just kind of turn it on its side or whatever, put it on a barge, it's it's still cargo. And if it falls off, the vessel that is carrying it is kind of responsible for that rather than the kind of the foundation itself. If you're going to tow a floater, the kind of the floater then becomes responsible <laughs> for itself, as it were, and, and needs its own kind of recognition. Um, so the uh, the other benefit is that you can then insure them. Uh, and you can insure, get conventional uh, marine insurance once they are in, in operation and, and moving around rather than something uh, really, really bespoke that you would then have to, you know, each individual project 
long negotiations with an insurer. How are these things fabricated? How are they made? How do we kind of ensure that they're safe? What happens if they sink? All of these things. So yeah, in the case of Concordan, components were built in Spain, assembled in the Netherlands, and then towed across uh, the sea as a single unit. Um, Ed said that the kind of main concern and the main thing that they had to reassure people around and, and that the benefit of these certific- certificates was uh, everyone was worried that they were going to fall over, essentially. I think uh, port authorities were worried that the, the thing, if became unstable at any point, would kind of tip over and you've then got, I don't know, 250, 300 meter long steel structure on its side blocking your entire port and waterway, at which point you're in some serious trouble. <laughs> um so that seemed to be the main thing that they needed reassurance on, that if, if that happened, that then you know insurers and other people could step in and there wasn't going to be some big prolonged battle over what was going to happen. And so calling it a ship gave them the reassurance they needed that if it fell over, someone would come and solve it. Basically, I think you get into kind of a maritime wreck conventions. There's a lot of other law that I really don't want to go into too much <laughs> and is thoroughly not my area of expertise. But yeah, the, the idea that you um, you have kind of pre-existing frameworks of law that that dictate what you do and who is responsible for it um he also said you know the fact that it's registered and in a registry means that someone's name is on it a company's name is on it you can contact them again to to hark back slightly to the um the kind of ghost tanker fleet that we were discussing a few months back ed you know that that's places where people are unable to contact the owners don't know what happens these things kind of just sit there and i think that was the worry with these structures where if they're you know technically cargo i suppose and you have an incident like that or they're they're an installation or something who steps in and how do we fix that um so yeah he, he said that you would you could exhibit the wreck removal cover to port authorities uh who were kind of then reassured you have a kind of very transparent system where you can go and look up check that they've been classified so i think um they were doing it kind of very early stage i think um at the time i'm not sure if there was a classification for floating wind structures he said there is now an american bureau of shipping and i think a dnv classification a specific one for wind structures so that's again progress even in those few years um, and I suppose the big, the big question on why why does it matter, um, especially in, in the, the the Scott Wind and the, the floating wind build out here, is that you know we have some capacity and we're definitely looking to build a lot more capacity to be able to realize these projects. But I think at the scale that we want to do it, it seemed Ed's definitely felt that it was inevitable that you will be bringing in some foundations and some components uh, from elsewhere. However, you want to navigate that fabrication process, and and to do that, he basically said, you know, this is probably the only way that he could come up with that would make sense for everyone involved to do this the question that that kind of sprang to mind when i was reading your piece um was 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 kind of really about uh the 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 lack of local capacity right and 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 i hadn't obviously clocked it um but the the idea that it that to to carry out maintenance on these ships as perhaps we should call them uh is they're going to need to be towed away maybe to the netherlands i mean this feels ludicrous uh, when is that changing? Like, I mean, if 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 Scotland's future is is offshore wind, and uh, you know, particularly floating wind, guys, when are you when are you going to get on this? <laughs> oh, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> I mean, I, I, not to uh, not to kind of echo your point there, Ed, but I, I believe a, a a man no less than Tim Pick called it a national disgrace <laughs> in these <laughs> in our very hallowed pages. Um, yeah, you're right. So at the moment, Kincardine, I think for. Uh, Critical maintenance has occasionally tur- turbines have been towed back to Rotterdam. The developers, I think, are very um, keen to press that as a temporary situation. They also acknowledge it doesn't it doesn't make sense kind of economically for them either. It's a huge journey to make when they're whatever twenty miles, thirty miles off of Aberdeen, where we have a huge maritime industry. So there is a case of building some capacity there. 
Um, and I think that is changing. But yeah, at the moment, you know, or whatever, the past two years, you know, we haven't had the capacity in Scottish ports to deal with the kind of uh, the level of jobs that, that were needed to fix those turbines when there was issues. Um, we, we, I think we can sail up to them as well and, and carry out minor maintenance, obviously operations and things. But any of this, this big stuff, it, it did need to go back to Rotterdam um, to be to be addressed, um, which is not a good state of affairs. And I think I think you know, we are <laughs> definitely working on that. But I think Ed's point is that even for, even just from a fabrication point of view, you know, there there kind of aren't enough port spaces and capacity potentially, you know, across the nation, across the UK. We're looking at hundreds, maybe even thousands of these. If we want to export them, you're kind of then looking at even more. Um, and so there will be a need, I think, for this process to develop more and more floating wind farms. He, as I say, he said, you know, there was no way around it. He could see it's the kind of most uh, straightforward way to do this. Um, the only interesting thing, I suppose, that also came up in our discussion was in the US, um, where they have the Jones Act. Another very specific piece of law that I won't try and explain, but essentially restricts domestic shipping services to vessels that are U.S. built, U.S. owned, U.S. flagged, and U.S. staffed. Where a floating foundation fits into that, it is uncrewed. But if you want to, you know, integrate a little bit on one side of the Atlantic and take it over, do you then fall foul of that? You know, will they be made there entirely? In the, in which case, as as Ed says, you you don't you this. This registration is probably uh, not useful if you're if you are hundred percent committed to doing every single thing in within your national and maritime borders. I think I suppose just on that sort of uh, that 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 US side, and just just to kind of close on it, I think um, the as I understand the the Inflation Reduction Act really uh, focuses on sort of domestic manufacturing. So I think there is clearly a uh, a sort of a US federal drive to kind of bulk up in 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 local manufacturing so uh, obviously to kind of try and tackle some of those 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 kind of discussions that we're sort of seeing in scotland but i think obviously that's a challenge right because uh the us has has obviously very little capacity in terms of existing knowledge of sort of offshore winds so it's going to be a a a steep uh learning curve and there is a time limit on on on, i believe on how things these, these these things move forward so I'm sure there's going to be a lot of questions around quite how to how, how, how best to kind of go about you know kind of rolling out these uh, these, these these major kind of construction projects. But listen, guys, I think that's probably about all the time we've got for today. So thanks, thanks, Ryan, thanks, Andy. Um, I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening. Out loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.